So as long as it's fair, as long as it's voluntary, inequality is fine. Inequality is great. We want those who succeed to be more rewarded than those who destroy value. But in the sense of our current environment, we have really sinister inequality. If everybody, you know, if, if the water's flowing and everyone is benefiting, right? Everyone's cup is filled. Um, people are happy, right? They have better things to do than to line up outside of someone's house and threaten to chop their head off. You know, I, I don't think we should be setting up guillotines anywhere. And that's, that's why I love Bitcoin. It's the peaceful revolution, right? Um, but why do people want to set up these guillotines? Because they know the system isn't working. It started to make a lot of sense to me that if we fixed money, we fixed so many problems in society. And so as a technology person, I was like, what should I be working on that's more important than this? this is, there's nothing more important than this. Hello and welcome to the Tucson Bitcoin Podcast. Today I have on Alex Gladstein, who is the Chief Strategy Officer over at the Human Rights Foundation. In this conversation, we talk about human rights, how Bitcoin protects human rights, and kind of the future issues around privacy and technology. It was a really fun conversation. I felt like I learned a lot. He's just a really smart guy and he's just got good content all over the place. whether he's talking about Bitcoin, decentralization of government, or uh, democracy in general. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to to the Tucson Bitcoin podcast. Um, So if anybody doesn't know who Alex Gladstein is, he's got good content everywhere. Uh, He's a human rights activist uh, and is the chief strategy officer at at the Human Rights Foundation. Um, So yeah, welcome. How did you get into uh, what you're doing right now? Sure, thanks for uh, having me on. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to the good people of Tucson. Um, I think it's really interesting to see, uh, Bitcoin communities pop up locally around the world and around the United States. I think it's quite important. So, uh, here's, here's to all of you guys. Um, I, uh, started doing human rights work in 2007, uh, with a nonprofit called the Human Rights Foundation. Um, we have a focus on trying to help people who live under authoritarian regimes who maybe don't have the same uh, mechanisms that we have in in democracies to challenge the government. For example, obviously here we can sue the government, we can write op-eds in the newspapers, we can do mass social movements, we can protest, we can whistleblow. These are all very effective things to, uh, to change government policy. In dictatorships, there's just no real room for most of that to happen. There are of course examples of protests inside dictatorships, but they are treated pretty harshly. Most protesters who are arrested are usually tortured or convicted or disappeared. And that's a big difference from protesters in the United States who, you know, like after the Occupy protests here in the US, you know, whether, whether you know, seven, eight, nine years ago, 99% of people who were arrested were released, you know, and some of them maybe were charged with super minor stuff, but at the same time, a couple of years later, you had, for example, protests in Venezuela where 99% of the people arrested never were seen again. So 
I think that's that's a helpful um, maybe way to differentiate open and closed societies and a good litmus test perhaps. And we should be grateful for the rights and freedoms that we have here and we should keep fighting for them, but we should be aware that like, you know, billions of people around the world don't, don't have those and therefore need to rely on other ways to protect their freedom and international organizations can help. Uh, but, you know, technology, I think, especially these days is, is probably the thing that's probably going to help the most in terms of people who live under authoritarian regimes. So at least that's the, that's a little bit about my background and, and the perspective I come at this with. Sure. So one thing I think is really important for uh, conversations is returning to first principles. So how, what do you define as human rights? Yeah. So human rights is a inherently political conversation. It is generally talked about in terms of enlightenment values coming out of the 17th and 18th century in, in, in Europe, thinking about individual liberties. And you would call these things like negative rights, for example, uh, perhaps things that the government shouldn't do, you know, that basically, uh, you know, these are civil liberties. These are things like freedom of expression or privacy or property rights or the right to participate in your government or the right to be free from torture. These are like restrictions on what the government can do to its people. Um, then there's also this idea of like positive human rights, which are entitlements, which were kind of like negotiated into the human rights lexicon by uh, at the UN level, at least the Soviet Union in the in the 20th century where it was sort of when the UN came together after World War II it was uh could it was sort of a negotiation between the US side and the in the Soviet side and the US was promoting these like negative rights these freedoms which were based on our own bill of rights right um and the Soviets were promoting these entitlements like the right to work the right to have a house the right to have health care the right to have a vacation things like that so there was this big negotiation with the UN and in fact, the UN Declaration of Human Rights is really split down the middle if you read them. The first, the first half are negative rights, are liberties, and the second half are positive rights, are entitlements. And that was quite intentional by the Soviets because what they wanted to do was, was basically focus on the entitlements and then they could say, well, maybe we're not doing so well on the liberties, but at least we're, we're like giving our people the right to work. And then the thing is, if you don't have the liberties and you don't have a free press, there's no way to verify those things so they can sort of get away with it um and, and you know they can claim to be promoting human rights while they're not and that is indeed what happened throughout the history of the soviet union later on there became other rights that people introduced like group rights or environmental rights uh different kinds of social rights but at the end of the day um when i talk about human rights i am referring to these positive civil liberties uh that, that are reflected in things like the the, the bill of rights um, or there's a really um, great document that was um, uh, created by many of the world's countries and ratified by many of them called in the late 70s called the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is the ICCPR. So that's the document that I would sort of refer to as the charter for these things. And um, yeah, between the Bill of Rights, the ICCPR, 
these are like negative negative rights liberties and that, that's what i talk about when i'm discussing human rights sure i think a lot of people are really disconnected uh in regards to what happens in protests in other countries with people getting disappeared or you know we've seen in uh um countries like Iran or Iraq recently where people are just shot in the streets during protests. Um, these are really important things to protect. So what do, you, what do you see as being some of the biggest challenges in American society um, against human rights? Well, the cell phone camera is a pretty good check against government abuse of power, as we saw this summer. If a cop is going to beat somebody up or strangle them or murder them as we saw it's going to be on camera and they're going to you know and we're going to know and there's going to be a huge public outcry and it, it not every time but like in obvious cases where you know a lot of this stuff happens at night in urban areas and there it's hard to see what's going on on the camera I, I will certainly say that but what you've started to see now is that like if a police officer in at least in daytime setting in a public place is going to make an abuse it's going to be captured on camera and they are hopefully going to be held accountable for that and probably fired um that's not something that would happen without cell phone cameras more or less um and, and even even cell phone cameras don't don't guarantee anything <clears throat> obviously we've seen I mean, it's not like you know uh George Floyd cares that his death was filmed on a camera or Eric Garner. It's not like he cares that his death was filmed with a camera, but in general, it is a useful technology that, that does allow the citizens to, to sort of check the power of the government. Um, so I, I think that's something I, I've seen inside the United States, at least that's been interesting. Yeah. You talk about technology as being a, both a tool for the people to empower them and then also potentially a uh, tool for the state to oppress people. Um, what are some things that normal people should be concerned about as far as uh, technology? Sure, well, I'm sure as we'll get into, I think that encrypted messaging uh, in the form of user-friendly apps like Signal is very important to help protect your privacy and check the surveillance state as is using Bitcoin, which I think is really important uh, from the first principles of digital cash, protecting your ability to uh, make payments, move money around and save uh, outside the control of the government, I think is going to be very important moving forward. Uh, on the other side, uh, big, sort of big data technology is, is not very friendly for human rights. So any sort of like big scheme where the government is collecting a huge amount of data about the population is usually really bad for human rights. I mean, the obvious cases are surveillance cases in terms of just what Snowden uncovered and what we've seen through the war on terror. And this has obviously been revealed in the United States, but it happens in almost every country where the government is like listening to phone conversations and getting that data from phone companies in some countries the government owns the phone company so it doesn't even have to do that um they are snooping on internet activity um they are getting data from internet service providers so they have all this data and several decades ago they couldn't do a lot with all this data it's too much number crunching right like all these credit cards that people had were 
ostensibly creating a lot of data, but governments, it was hard for them to like parse all of it. But now, now that like humans don't have to sit there and parse it, now that we have these like sufficiently advanced algorithms, you know, specific AIs that can really crunch big data, now it's a huge issue, right? So now you're seeing like governments and corporations be able to actually make sense of all this huge amount of data and then act on it and then do social engineering, which is like what the dream of all the dictators always has been, right? Um, but now they actually have a tool to make it happen. So now they can like have a more real-time understanding of what's going on and react accordingly. So that's, that's an example of bad or like authoritarian technology. Yeah, uh, there's a real attitude of apathy in the US when it comes to allowing people to collect our data. Uh, is that something you see as being dangerous or? I mean, long-term, yeah. Short-term, no, I mean, You know, there are enough checks and balances in the United States where, you know, in the next few months, it's not going to be like a life or death thing. But long term, if people continue to serve up all their sensitive information to third parties in an unchecked way, and those third parties can share that information, all that stuff can get like sorted and uh, analyzed and, uh, you know, distributed in, in big, in these markets and you know, people are unaware that they, essentially their, their data is becoming like securitized. Like the, like your geolocation data is being wrapped up and sold to somebody else, you know, like all, all these digital footprints you leave behind are being sold. Right. So, um, it's, it's not super encouraging and, and there's a really bad long-term trend. So I, I think it's not an overreaction to try and challenge some of that. Uh, and, and to be honest right now, the simple, again, the simplest ways to do that are just to just, just, you know, try to just get some of your daily back and forth with people onto the apps like signal. And so it's just better. Um, and then again, get involved with Bitcoin. I mean, I think these are two areas that, that, that over the long term will make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. I had uh, Isaiah Jackson on from Bitcoin and Black America the other day, and we were talking uh -huh. about how Bitcoin can really benefit uh, the Black community. And, and one of the things that popped up is uh, um, oftentimes minority groups are targeted by um, the established order. So what, what types of groups of people do you think with uh, increasing digitalization of money and and data collection are at risk in the United States of being unfairly targeted? Well, I think privacy is, is potentially going to be something, you know, that is a luxury good. I mean, you, you saw, and it's very hard to be private. It takes a lot of time and effort and it's expensive to be, be really private, right? Um, and that's not something that like the average person can afford in terms of time or money. So, that's why things like Bitcoin that are open and free and available to everybody are so important. It's it's open to everybody. Every, you don't have to have a lot of money to buy Bitcoin, right? You don't have to like prove your ID or be a particular class of person or have a, have a particular college degree, right? It's open to everybody. And that's like incredibly, incredibly powerful. Uh, you know, same thing with something like Signal. I mean, it's not like, it's not like the elite have a better, more private way of communicating. 
like the Biden campaign just used Signal, for example. I mean, th these are very, you know, important public people and that th they're using the same technology as the rest of us, you know. So I, I think that that's, uh, that's pretty powerful. But at the end of the day, yeah, like people without a lot of money, of course, going to be at the highest risk because they're not going to be able to pay for privacy. Even, I mean, even think about like freeware, like a lot of free software or free YouTube or whatever, like the, all, everything you consume on the internet is being monetized and shifted in a direction where there's going to be a free version whereby you pay with your privacy and then a, and then a premium version whereby you pay with money and you keep your privacy, right? This, this is like sort of happening in a lot of places, right? Um, or where, you know, you get to pay to get rid of the ads, right? Um, and those ads are like synced up with subscriptions and they, they can tell companies things about you, right? So um, it is certainly people <clears throat> with, who, who are spending the least amount of money that, that are most at risk. And obviously in a global context, you know, people who don't have IDs or ethnic minorities inside dictatorships are, are the most at risk because they're scapegoats of the government um, or sometimes, you know, the, the focus of intense ethnic cleansing campaigns uh, or, or cultural genocide campaigns as we're seeing in China today with the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and even populations in Inner Mongolia. So I would agree, yes, uh, you know, minorities and the lower classes are, are most at risk here. Yeah, it's definitely something to be concerned about. Um, so as far as Bitcoin, uh, Iran seems to be really embracing it recently. Um, do you see Bitcoin facilitating uh, oppressive regimes and getting around government sanctions as being an issue or as a positive for the people in the country? So... I do think that rogue regimes will use Bitcoin to get around sanctions in the short term. However, you have to understand that when a government instructs its administration or the officials in its cabinet or whatever that, hey, we want to get around these financial sanctions through Bitcoin, that team of people has to actually go out and learn how to use Bitcoin. They have to learn what it is. They have to learn how to, whether they hack it or receive it or earn it or steal it, they have to learn how to use it. And it's like a virus, like it, it grows and it spreads. And everybody who's working on that project now knows there's this money that's not, that's beyond the control of the government. And I just don't think it ends well for these dictatorships. Like uh, sure, the North Koreans and Iranians in the short term, the Venezuelans, they, they may, they may turn to Bitcoin in some way, but um, it's going to bite them real hard, uh, you know, shortly thereafter. And long term, it's like a total disaster for dictatorships. I mean, dictatorships rely on controlling the economy. And Bitcoin puts control of pieces of the economy into the hands of the people. I mean, it couldn't be any worse for them. Um, I also think that, that there's going to be trepidation from dictators because the smart ones are going to figure this out pretty soon. And and they're not going to be so excited about uh, popularizing Bitcoin or adopting Bitcoin. So I think you're going to see that uh, soon enough. But if, if you just look at China, I mean, 
you see a regime that doesn't really, it, it seems like it doesn't really know what to do about Bitcoin. Like clearly it's signaled many times that it doesn't want its people taking RMB and exchanging it for Bitcoin and vice versa. And there's just, there's been various like, you know, de facto bans, like in 2017, there's been laws and, restric and restrictions and there's been people arrested to make an example for other people. But at the end of the day, Bitcoin is still wildly popular in China. So, I mean, the government is kind of like half-heartedly kind of warned people against it, but tons of people inside the government and uh, in the high up in the business sectors, I mean, they, they mine Bitcoin, they use it to move their money abroad. So the virus spread pretty fast over there, I guess is what I'm saying. So I, I think they're beyond the ability of like, you know, banning it. I, I think that that's going to be difficult. So to, in some um, short term, it might be helpful for some of these dictators, but it's a disaster for them in the medium to long term. Sure. Yeah, I, it, it seems like when a country bans Bitcoin, it actually makes the network stronger uh, and kind of yeah you live in a dictatorship you're, you you've been tuned you've been conditioned to be very interested in whatever the government says not to do <laughs> so whether or not you do it you, you're interested in it so all of a sudden oh the government says hey hey this asset that you've heard about that's done really well don't touch it it's not for you i don't think that's going to go so well um it's gonna be huge black markets for these things which drive the price up even more i mean the thing is i mean maybe governments can keep the people off the internet because like you live in China, like what's it really worth it to you to like learn what happened in Tiananmen Square and share that with your friends and family? I mean, is it really going to make that much of a difference? I mean, it's admirable to want to know the truth, but it's not going to put more food on your table. But at the same time, let's say in five years, China has introduced this uh, CBDC, the Central Bank Digital Currency, the DCEP, and cash is basically they've gotten rid of cash five, 10 years from now. And everybody's forced to use this RMB and they have no, they have no access to the dollar, right? So um, at least most people, maybe the rich do, but most people don't. And yet they've like, they know that this thing is out there, Bitcoin, and it keeps increasing in value over time. There's nothing that you're gonna be able to do to stop them from getting it, nothing. I mean, they're gonna want a better future for their family. So they're gonna want Bitcoin. They're gonna to wanna to invest in it. They're gonna to wanna to save in it. So I just think it's gonna be really difficult for governments to prevent their people from, from using this thing. Yeah, one of the more interesting arguments against governments uh, potentially banning it in the future is that even the people in the government are gonna want their hands on it. Like the regulators are gonna eventually. It, it just harnesses human greed in this perfect way. I mean, who's not gonna want some? Like you'd have to be crazy not to. So. So yeah. Um, so one of the, I, I've been going down the libertarian rabbit hole recently and uh, reading the creature from Jekyll Island. And, and one of the, the things that um, arguments that's presented in the book is that central banks are kind of an enemy against free and open societies in the sense that they promote a school of thought that it that inevitably makes the government bigger and have more control do you do you feel like central banking is a problem um for democracies 
Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. Um, <clears throat> I think that central banking is a pretty short-lived experiment. In some ways, in the far future, I imagine that people will look back at time, in time and see the era of like a very small group of people getting to make all the decisions about money for everybody else as being kind of like a king or a tyrant or a dictator in some ways, <clears throat> kind of like an old concept that is, it seems um, whimsical maybe even, hopefully. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, it, it just seems strange that again, this small unelected group of people can kind of determine like what money is and how it works. Um, and it's run its course. I mean, it certainly has had some victories. Um, and, you know, it seems pretty clear that it probably can't go on like this forever without adverse effects for the society. I mean, again, most people, most people's central bankers aren't printing the euro or the dollar. Like that's, those people are part of the lucky billion, you know? Most people in the sort of central bankers are printing uh, a terrible currency that has, that loses its value all the time and that nobody, no other government wants to hold. I mean, if you actually look at, you know, foreign exchange reserves that countries hold as like country savings, like if the dictator or the president or whatever wants to save and you live in some <clears throat> country that's in, you know, Central Africa or South America or East Asia, like you're, you're not saving in RMB or in, you know, the Saudi real or whatever. You're saving in dollars and euros. I think it's 90% dollars and euros. 95% um, dollars, euros, Swiss francs and in yen, 95%. Uh, so almost all the world's like savings is done in those currencies. But yet, such a few, such a small percentage of people in the world actually have access to those currencies for their day-to-day -day transactions and personal savings. So there is like this lucky billion uh, of people who live in advanced economies who enjoy a working economy, but most people don't have that, right? And for most people, central banking has been a total disaster um, because it has allowed their government to uh, run roughshod uh, over the people and steal steal their money, basically. Um, I think where it gets tricky is because, because some governments have performed better than others, largely because of things like property rights and, and um, being open and having democracies, like they've performed really well economically. So they've been able to prop up uh, their currencies and those currencies are like the ones that are most in demand. But I, I wouldn't, I would be careful about thinking that could last forever. Um, I realize we're about to embark on this great modern monetary theory experiment probably in most countries where there is not like a, a debt limit uh, or, or the idea of a, a a limit to the debt or the or even the idea that growing debt is bad is looked down upon in nmt circles i mean they're basically like we should just keep printing money until until you know until we don't need to print it anymore i mean it's just essentially what they're saying i mean and you know eventually there'll be some inflation <clears throat> that like you know holds us back printing more so we're going to get to see that play out so here's the thing no matter what you think about the era of central banking i mean bitcoin is a great hedge <laughs> against it like no matter what these people do with their newfound economic powers you're going to get to have 
your own savings that's sovereign that they can't devalue. So, and, and this may matter less, again, for people who live in these advanced economies where the, where the politicians, you know, for one reason or another have had great track record, much better track records. Um, central bankers in other countries have had very bad track records. Um, but this is like the great equalizer. This gives everybody the opportunity to have this asset that has an algorithmic monetary supply and that is not controlled by some people in some smoky back room making arbitrary decisions for the rest of us. There is no Davos for Bitcoin. Like <laughs> there is no group of central bankers that can get together and say, hey, we're going to like slash interest rates and we're going to experiment with zero interest. No, there's no like, there's no, there's, there's no zero interest rate possibility in, in Bitcoin. The, the, no one is going to get to determine the issuance rate beyond what was set in stone in January 2009 by Satoshi. That's it. So it is this like great equalizer and this great opportunity for everybody to have a hedge or an alternative in a world where I would just be concerned about the health of a lot of um, fiat assets. Um, that being said, I, you know, that's what I believe. Um, but it is a, it, it, it's a risky position. It's sort of a risky thing to believe in because the world does not present the facts in that way. Like what I'm trying to say is that it, it is definitely an aggressive stance to have to be so against central banking when the European and American central banks have, have arguably performed so well, like just in terms of living standards and things like that, like in the last 50 years, like, like we've never been so prosperous as a human species, right? So um, I think there's serious issues under the hood of the car and that this isn't sustainable and that most people have gotten screwed because they haven't even had access to those great experiments. Um, but but you but I feel like you can understand why the average person would look at you when if you were to say, hey, central banks are terrible and be like, what do you mean? Like, I, I understand the public skepticism for these kind of arguments. And, and it's part of what makes Bitcoin such a niche thing right now is that it requires you to kind of open your mind and take into account stuff that maybe you aren't used to taking into account. And it's kind of a bold thing to do. Like it, it's pretty, it takes a lot of conviction <laughs> to believe in Bitcoin and to believe in all that comes with it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I went and spoke at a college class on Bitcoin and the question of um, central banks came up and like how would the economies manage without some sort of central uh, control. And I went in pretty hard and said, uh, the central banks exist only to keep the bankers rich and to protect their wealth. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and it was a pretty funny. Not, I mean, it's pretty, pretty accurate. I would say, I mean, it's it, in one way, right? I mean, if you actually look at the, if you listen to somebody if you try to take the perspective of someone who's like pro central bank, right. And you try to get into their mindset and you listen to them for, you take their classes, you study from them, et cetera. The case they try to make is that being on the gold standard was too volatile and it was terrible for the economy because we had these big crashes and bubbles, et cetera. 
and there was no backstop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they basically try to paint the picture of like central banks being an evolution uh, of, 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 of just, you know, monetary theory and of, of uh, you know, government management of the economy. And they, they do it in a pretty convincing way. You know, if you didn't, if I didn't know what Bitcoin was, it would be harder for me to be critical of central banks. Let's put it that way. Because gold, I, we're not going back to the gold standard. Just we're not. It's a dumb piece of rock. And it, it, there's going to be a lot more gold that we find in the future. Um, I think gold is helpful because it like, it's been just an amazing store of value for so many thousands of years. And it, it shows you why scarcity is important. But, you know, it would be very difficult to have these beliefs, I think, if Bitcoin didn't exist. Um, and and the, the, look, the argument for, uh, you know, why there should be this backstop on the commercial banking system is, it's not a crazy argument. Uh, it seems to make sense. So I just think it's, it's going to be difficult to convince the... Uh, Here's the good thing. It would be very difficult to convince all these people that believe in central banking that we shouldn't do it. In fact, impossible because they control the central banks. But that's not how Bitcoin operates. Bitcoin doesn't have to convince anybody. Bitcoin has the, you know, it has number go up technology, NGU technology. That's how it's going to convince them. It, like, so, you know, we don't need to go to central bankers and argue with them about Bitcoin. That's the beautiful thing. We can focus on making it more private, making it more usable for people. Bitcoin will address the central bankers. Like they'll have to deal with it at some point down the road. So it's not something, it's such a beautiful thing. Cause like, unlike any other kind of social movement, like even with encryption in a way, like simply because it doesn't offer uh, a way to, there's nothing within encryption that's profitable. So like you really have to be altruistic in a lot of ways. Like look at the Tor project, the people that run the exit nodes don't make any money, you know? So they're volunteers. So even this idea of encryption and all the cypherpunks, a lot of them had full-time jobs doing something else, right? And they were just, you know, whittling away like Satoshi, right? Um, but they were, you know, they got their full-time jobs somewhere else. Bitcoin's the first time really in, in many ways where you've had like this sort of a radical cypherpunk tool where, you know, you can just, you can just live in Bitcoin and make, and, and make money against fiat currency, um, it, you know, by doing what you want to do. It's, it's a very interesting moment, I think. And I think very promising because usually the promotion of privacy and freedom is, is a voluntaristic thing that does not reward you with profit. Like it's not, uh, you know, these technologies usually are not very profitable. Um, so anything that challenges government power is usually not that profitable. So it's pretty exciting to see this, uh, to see this all play out like this. Yeah, it's... Uh pretty mind-blowing uh, actually how quickly a lot of it's happening it's, it seems like every couple of weeks there's a new billionaire going on tv talking about how they're adding bitcoin to their portfolio of course i mean you have to be crazy not to by this point and again that's number go up ngu technology and that's what's going to pull in people but but they don't realize is that they're getting involved in something much deeper, much more revolutionary and radical than I think what they, what they think. I mean, they think they're hedging against instability in the world by buying this asset that's digital gold. What they don't realize is that they're empowering uh, this, you know, more and more people to enter and access this incredible global network that ultimately checks the power of the state. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of switching gears. So 
I really enjoyed your uh, debate with Saifedean. I thought that was really good. Um, and it would actually ease my nerves a lot uh, going into the election because I, I, I was listening to it. And one of the things that you talked about, um, one of the powerful things about the U.S. democracy is checks and balances. So um, talking about the election, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of energy. I don't, I'm not taking a stance on it, but there's a lot of energy uh, right now questioning the legitimacy of the election. What, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? There was a lot of, there was the same four years ago. Um, a lot of Democrats uh, really believed that the election that put Trump into power was illegitimate, that it had been you know, aided by the Russians or some other government, that there were issues with the ballot machines, that there had been it's, you know, some sort of fraud, whatever. I mean, th- th- there was so much of that that it, it boiled over into a, a, you know, investigation at the highest levels of the government and the sitting president ended up getting impeached by the House. I mean, it was a pretty big deal. So I think it would be pretty naive for people to think that that, would, that couldn't happen again. Um, uh, and yet, and, and, you know, now we're seeing it. Um, However, I, I don't think the system is broken. I think we're gonna see what happens. I mean, over the next few weeks, like the Trump, administ- the Trump administration is gonna, you know, it's, it's going to court, you know? It has, there are all kinds of legal opportunities for these people to um, prove their case and dig up evidence and all that stuff will be, will be looked at by courts and we'll have to see. And, you know, if courts in certain states think that the election had a problem, they'll, you know, there's lots of tools available. I mean, hey, in the year 2000, there was a recount in Florida. Um, and the result of that was a case brought to the Supreme Court, which paused the recount and gave the election to Bush. So, so we'll have to see. But again, I think that um, <clears throat> here we have uh, a very tense moment in our country's history. And yet, it seems like the most likely scenario is that uh, these checks and balances in the legal system will ultimately provide all the opportunities to uh, the losing side um, to contest, um, but eventually exhaust them. Uh, you know, if they if they can't prove that they are the rightful winners uh, of the way that we choose our president, um, then the other side will come into power. And this thing of multi-party politics, I think, is so important because it it, it prevents one group of people from gaining too much power. And that, that I think is, is really what the debate with Seyfedean I think is all about in the, in, in the end is, is that democracy is like this mechanism for shuffling the people in power so that they don't get too much control. If you just allow a family to be in control forever, like they're absolute power corrupts absolutely. They're gonna do horrible shit. Like we've seen this, like there's just so many examples. Like, like a lot of the people who've been in power for a long time are all brutal dictators. Like. I mean, look at the Syrians or the North Koreans, or, I mean, these are all people who've been in power. These are all monarchies, right? So it's very, I would say it's nearly impossible to find uh, a monarch um, who is not running a police state these days, you know? I mean, I think in the debate, we settled that um, like Jordan and Morocco as being like probably the best examples of like monarchies today real monarchies but like these are both 
dictatorships that, that have secret police. And, you know, they're certainly better than the surroundings, I would say. I think you can make a case that Israel has a better functioning government than Jordan. Um, certainly has more business opportunities and more patents and more scientists and more innovation and things like that. Um, <clears throat> more, more scientific leadership. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, these are, these are fairly low bars. Like you wouldn't put Jordan and Morocco in the top 25 of the best performing governments in the world. I mean, they wouldn't be close. So I just think this idea of like a monarchy or some sort of authoritarian state is a poor one. And democracy is, is a really good one. Um, <clears throat> I think, and, and I think America has a very particular model, which is not suitable or desirable by other democracies. I mean, there's many ways to have a democracy. But at the end of the, at the, end of the day, as long as we have a free press, um, which we do here in the United States, um, and as long as we have civil society organizations, which we do, uh, there are nonprofits on both sides suing and whistleblowing. As you and I speak right now, there's all kinds of activity. The ACLU is suing the president in, in Pennsylvania. Project Veritas is whistleblowing, going to court with other people. It's this beautiful back and forth, right? And none of that shit happens in China, you know? So all these things that are protected by balance of power in a democracy, which is sort of in the end made possible by the fact that there's this transition of power, this regular transition of power every few years, uh, I, I think is, is, is quite important. Um, it, is, it is a crazy time right now, um, but we've had crazy times in our country before. There've been contested elections. So, I mean, we'll see. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that this is any crazier than in the year 2000, to be honest, but, but we'll, we'll, we'll see over the next few weeks, but I'm pretty sure this is going to be a, uh, uh, our institutions will protect us and this will be a, a peaceful transition of power one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that it will be a peaceful transition of power. And uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that popped into mind, so I, I have a background in social work. And so um, sometimes I think in those types of terms and, you know, I kind of relate government abuses to being similar to um, uh, domestic violence abuse. So like typical um, attitude that somebody uh, in domestic violence, engaging in domestic violence will do is they'll, they'll isolate the person and uh, um, take away any accountability. So remove them from their family, whether that's moving or, or forcing them to cut off relationships. Um, you know, and become very controlling over their life. And I, I just think that's really interesting. You know, the ideas of checks and balances being so um, hugely important, whether it's within the government or outside, like a free press, like you were talking about. Um, so yeah, uh, it, it's really comical to me to, um, to see all the um, screaming about election meddling seeing the long history of election meddling that the u.s has engaged in in other countries um but yeah it's it, it's very interesting to me um where where are some good places that people can follow your work uh well they can follow me on twitter at gladstein and they can um, visit the Human Rights Foundation at hrf.org. And 
I have uh, a bunch of articles and essays that I've written um, and um, podcasts I've done that, that you can look up on uh, Time Magazine or CNN or Bloomberg, uh, Forbes, um, Quillette. I've done a few others. So uh, you can check, check my stuff out there. And uh, if you're interested in spreading the ideas of Bitcoin to like um, people who don't haven't, haven't learned about it yet, I think this book I worked on last year called The Little Bitcoin Book is, is a helpful intro. Uh, I wrote it with um, Jimmy Song and a bunch of other Bitcoiners from around the world. So uh, it's on Amazon and it's in a bunch of different languages too, actually, if you go to littlebitcoinbook.com. So uh, yeah, I would say check that out. I haven't even heard of that yet. I'm excited to check it out. Oh, it's sure. a good one. It was a lot of fun. It's a quick little primer, about 100 pages. That is, um, I think it was fun. We did it in the design sprint. We lived in the house together, eight of us for uh, like a week, and we wrote the book. Wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Um, well, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, talking. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for having me. Look forward to following your work. That was a really fun conversation with Alex. And uh, I felt like I learned a lot. I feel like these conversations are more important than ever to have right now. Uh, to be sober-minded and, and to really question, you know, what are human rights and why are they important to protect? Because, you know, one thing that is inherent in human nature is to uh, kind of surrender rights for exchange for security and uh, one thing that we know is that once we give those rights away they oftentimes don't come back easily and so you know it's just a time to be really careful I think and, and Bitcoin really is a unique tool to protect your rights uh, and protect your self-sovereignty and so it was a really fun conversation on those issues. Uh, but yeah, if you like what I'm doing, uh, you can support me on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month at uh, Tucson Blockchain. And your support really goes a long way to giving me resources to keep on putting on putting out content. Uh, you can also donate Bitcoin to me on the on the Tucson Blockchain website. And uh, but ultimately, the best way to support me and the podcast is just to get the word out to your friends you know to retweet to to like subscribe leave reviews you know do all that stuff to push it up in the algorithms uh really helps and thanks for listening